Howdy, Pastor Mark Driscoll here. Really excited to help you learn God's Word here at Mark Driscoll Ministries. We like to help people learn God's Word and we like to help leaders teach God's Word. And we've got a lot of new resources for you, all free, through the great book of 1 John in a series titled, The Father Heart of God. John was Jesus' nearest and dearest, closest and most faithful, best friend, and as an elderly man, the last living disciple of Jesus, he writes this amazing letter, and in his words, we hear the Father heart of God. I had the opportunity to teach this book in 13 weeks as a Bible study for the core launch team of the Trinity Church that I'm having the honor of planting in Scottsdale, Arizona, and I wanted you to learn God's Word, and so we've also provided for you about a 20,000 word study guide. This will help you study it personally with your family and or a small group. And for those of you who really like to go deep, we've got a free 240,000 word research brief that was put together by a team of scholars and professors and we'll give it all to you for free at markdriscoll.org. Go ahead and sign up and any gift that you give will help us to give more Bible teaching away. Thanks for the help. We are a church that likes to go through books of the Bible. Sometimes I'll do what's called a topical series, but I, I like the Bible. I'm a nerd. I really love God's Word, and I love teaching God's Word. And so we're looking at the Father heart of God in 1 John. We've been in it for a while. And today we're in 1 John chapter 5, uh, verses 6 through 13, looking at testimonies about Jesus. So let me pray. Father God, Father God, thank you so much for an opportunity to teach the scriptures today. Thank you for all of the grace and provision that you've poured out on our Bible study and our core launch team here at the Trinity Church. I thank you as we lean into our public launch that we have an opportunity to open the scriptures together and to learn about Jesus. And so Holy Spirit, would you come today and take the testimony of the scriptures and cause them to be the testimony of our lives, that we would testify that the Lord Jesus is God, that he is our savior, that he has loved us well, and that we get to love him back. And so Holy Spirit, please open our hearts and minds as we open your word. And if there's anyone here who does not yet know the Lord Jesus, I pray you'd open their eyes to receive him today in Jesus' good name, amen. Well, when it comes to Jesus, he is the most controversial person in the history of the world. For a few thousand years, debate has raged around who Jesus is. In fact, more books have been written regarding him than anyone who has lived in the history of the world. And if you've picked up more than one, you know that those books don't all agree. There's this great debate that has raged throughout history about who Jesus is. So today, I want you to consider us to be basically a courtroom. And imagine that there are two sides presenting their evidence about the person and work of Jesus. And, and one group would say that he is a good man, but not the God man. The other group would say that he is the God-man, that he is God become a man. He's not just a good man, he's the God-man. Imagine that the, the team that is saying that Jesus is just a good man has already presented their case, and it's actually become wildly popular. That at this point it's taken root, and books have been written, and conferences have been held, and leaders have risen up, and, and organizations have been started to perpetuate this ideology that Jesus is a good man, but he's not the God-man. Imagine that it's led to such a debate and a public controversy that it's culminated in a court case and that you all are the jury and that we're convening today and we're eavesdropping into, we're listening in on, we're peering in on this trial that is raging with public implications. And what's going to happen today is this man named John, he is going to present his case that Jesus is not just a good man, but he's the God-man. 
And he's going to bring in witnesses. And you're going to hear this language of testimony and testify over and over and over. And this is what happens in a court case. Each side presents their evidence. They bring in their expert witnesses. They bring in their eyewitness testimony. And then the jury has to render a verdict as to what they believe the actual truth is. And so today, to some regard, let's just consider ourselves like a jury. Let's consider that the other side has stated their case, and now this man, John, is going to step forward, and he's going to bring to testify for us a series of witnesses regarding Jesus as the God-man. And so we begin in 1 John chapter 5, verses 6 through 8, and he gives us uh, the testimony of three witnesses. This is he who says, who came by water and blood, Jesus Christ. So who are we talking about? Jesus Christ. Keep this. This is the issue. Christianity is about a lot of things, but ultimately, if you boil it down, the main thing, Jesus Christ. Okay. Jesus Christ, not by the water only, but by water and the blood. And the Spirit is the one who testifies because the Spirit is the truth. For there are three that testify, the Spirit, the water, and the blood. And these three agree. Now, what happened in Old Testament law is things required two or three witnesses. You'll hear this language a lot. And so when you're considering something, if you want to do so according to the precepts of the Bible, it takes more than just one person's testimony. You need multiple witnesses to come in and to say, these are in fact the facts and we observe them and we testify to them and we're on record regarding them. And so what he's talking about here is meeting this biblical criteria of a handful of witnesses. Now, let me say this before we get into it. Everything in the Bible is equally true, but not everything in the Bible is equally clear. Okay? I love being your pastor, and I love teaching you the scriptures. And I want to be honest and say that as you study the scriptures, not everything is equally clear to you. This may be because these are just brand new concepts, and you've never learned these things before. This may be because you read it, and you don't like it. <laughs> and so there's a little bit of a personal confrontation in your own behavior. Sometimes it's because we're historically, culturally removed a few thousand years, and they may have had cultural uh, practices that were a little distant from, or they may have had some uh, beliefs and behaviors that are a bit foreign to us, or perhaps because there was a controversy or a debate raging or questions being asked, and then the scriptures provide the answer, but we're historically removed, so we're not exactly sure what the questions or the debate was. Does that make sense? So I'll give you an example. The book of 1 Corinthians, they write a whole bunch of questions to Paul. He writes the book to answer the questions. We get all the answers, but we don't have the list of questions. So that can make it a little hard to really, okay, what exactly was the question? We're trying to ascertain what the original question was. Well, here there was a debate raging. And there were popular false teachers. There were conferences. There were books being written. Things were trending on social media, you know, equivalent in that day where Jesus is a good man, he's not the God man. He's not God become a man in human flesh. So they were already familiar with the arguments, they were familiar with the debates, they were familiar with the leaders, they were familiar with the cases. And, and a few thousand years later, we don't know exactly everything that they were raising as an objection or a question. We instead have John's defense and his answer Everything in the Bible is equally true. Not everything is equally clear. Here's why I want to tell you that. Because the Bible, in fact, teaches that. There's a guy named Peter. He was the leader of Jesus' disciples. He writes a few letters in the New Testament. And he writes regarding this man named Paul, who writes in the New Testament as well. He says, some things that Paul writes are, does anybody know the line? Hard to understand. Okay, here's what I want you to understand. When it comes to the scriptures, we have to begin with humility. 
Okay, now I always say there's two ways to view the scriptures. One is like this, where we and our, our culture and our education and our intellect and our experience and our desires and our perspectives and our experiences are over the scriptures. The other is our approach here at the Trinity Church, and that is we're under the scriptures. That the scriptures have authority over us. And that if we don't understand, it's not because there's something wrong with the Bible, there's something wrong with our understanding. If we disagree, it's not because the Bible's wrong, it's because we're wrong. And it means that there needs to be a humility that if this is really the book that God wrote, it would make sense that God is wiser and smarter than we are. And when we read it, there may be some things that we have a difficulty understanding. And so we research and we study and we give it time and we pray and we ask the Holy Spirit to help us to learn. But ultimately it means that we approach the scriptures with an assumption and a presumption of humility. And sometimes that means we need to say, that's hard to understand. That's, that's hard to understand. It doesn't mean it's not true. It means that it's hard for me to understand. And so when it comes to this section of scripture, the reason I state this, this is one of the most debated sections in the whole New Testament. Scholars, Christians throughout the history of the church have widely disagreed. People who love Jesus, believe the Bible, are filled with the Holy Spirit. They will disagree what these witnesses are and refer to and mean. Now, let me say what they all tend to agree on is who we're talking about. They all agree that this section is talking about the person of uh, Jesus Christ. But when it comes to these three witnesses, here they are, the water, the blood, and the spirit. How many of you would say, well, I think I can get the spirit. That one seems a little easier to understand. That's God, the Holy Spirit. We'll speak of him in a moment. The debate comes, what does he mean by the water and the blood? And there's all kinds of opinions and perspectives. I'll give some to you. Um, number one, some would say it's the sacraments of baptism where a Christian gets brought under the water to show the death and burial of Jesus and brought forth in newness of life to show the resurrection of Jesus. So they would say that the water refers to the baptism and that uh, the blood refers to communion where Christians remember the bloodshed of Jesus in our place for our sins. Number two, some would say the, the birth of Jesus is mentioned here um, that when you're born, your mom's water breaks and blood flows. And as a result, you enter this world by water and blood. And they would say that this shows that God became a man. And that when Jesus was born of Mary, he was literally physically a human being. Okay? Third one perspective is this talks about his life and his death. That the water refers to his birth. Your mom's water breaks. You're born into the world. And then his blood is shed and he dies on the cross in the place for sinners and that this refers to his birth and his life. The fourth would be that this in fact refers to the crucifixion of Jesus where God becomes a man, he lives without sin, he suffers and dies in our place for our sins, he dies on the cross and to ensure that he's dead, a Roman soldier, an executioner takes a spear, runs it under his ribcage, up into his heart sack, and, and for those of you who know the story, what flowed out of the side of Jesus? Water and blood. So some would say, well, maybe that's it. Now, here's what I want you to see. They're all pointing to Jesus. So who we're talking about is not in question. The how they're pointing to him is what's in question. So what we agree about is the main thing, that it's ultimately all about Jesus Christ. And what are these witnesses? And what I would give to you today, and this will be a precedent for us here at the Trinity Church, I will give you what I think the answer is. And I could be wrong. Okay? And I could be wrong. And here's why I wanna articulate this. Uh, Bible teachers have decisions to make when we reach portions of the scripture that we're not 100% sure, 
we can either take a definitive hardline stance or we could say, here's what I think and here's why. And it's a secondary issue, not a primary issue. And I want you to do your own homework and study. And if you happen to disagree with me on this point, you are in company with godly, Bible-believing, Jesus-loving people. Okay? So I want to be very clear that we hold the Scriptures in high authority and regard. <clears throat> we believe that Scriptures are perfect, and we believe that we are imperfect, and that when we reach really difficult portions of Scripture, there needs to be some humility that says, here's what a lot of Christians think, this is my take, but if you disagree with me, you could be right. Okay? Does that make sense? And so what will hold us together is Jesus Christ, and then the things that we'll discuss are the various portions of Scripture that aren't equally clear to us. Here's what I think he means. I think that the three witnesses, the Spirit, we'll speak about him last, the water and the blood. I believe here the water refers probably to the baptism of Jesus, and the blood refers probably to the crucifixion of Jesus. Okay? When we're talking about the water, you remember Jesus being submerged in water. And the story is that he had a cousin named John. Uh, John was an odd kid, lived out in the woods. He's like from Prescott or Payson. He's, he's kind of out there, you know. He's one of the cowboys, lives out in the middle of nowhere. Um, he, he, he was homeschooled. He wore like a Jedi robe. He lived on a diet of bugs and honey. He was an odd kid, okay? And, and he's a prophet and he walks in. He's Jesus' cousin and he starts preaching the repentance of sin. Uh, to a bunch of religious people, many of whom don't think that they're really that sinful. And they come down to the river to be baptized, which honestly in that day was very unusual because Gentiles, non-Jews, people that didn't grow up in you know, Old Testament believing homes, they would tend to get baptized. Jewish people, not so much. They were already God's chosen people. They were already circumcised as the sign of the covenant. They tended not to get baptized. But here's something happening. The religious people, the, the people that are the inheritance of the Old Testament promises of God, they realize that they're sinners and they need a savior too. So they come down to the river and they repent of their sins and they're baptized by John. And they're dipped underwater and they're brought back up showing that just as sin makes us dirty and water makes us clean, so, so we are filthy in the sight of God and we need to be cleansed in the sight of God and our old way of life needs to be buried and our new way of life needs to come forth by God's grace. That's all what baptism indicates and implicates. Now, what happens is John is baptizing and Jesus, he's around 30 years of age, he walks toward this scene and John looks at him and he says, behold the lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. Now at this point, Jesus has lived in relative obscurity. He's around 30, he's in a small town, he's got poor peasant parents who were probably teenagers when he was married. He's been working in the family business as a carpenter with his dad. He's not had a high profile public ministry. He's not on the radar of the media. He's sort of off in the corner, but here he enters the scene. And here Jesus sort of makes his entrance as a grown man into human history and he enters the stage of human history. And John looks at him and says, behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. And, and for those who are Jewish in orientation, this would have brought up a tremendous amount of understanding. 
They had the Old Testament sacrificial system where the sinner would acknowledge their sin and they would offer a sacrifice, usually a lamb without spot or blemish, showing it was without defect or sin. And that animal would be the substitute and the shedding of the blood would be in the place of the sinner, showing that God's wrath needs to be appeased. And all of this was done by the priest in the temple and blood flowed and this was the tradition of God's people. And here comes Jesus and he is the lamb of God, the one without spot or blemish. There's no sin in him, he's perfect altogether. And he takes away not only the sin of an individual, he takes away the sin of the whole world. The whole world. And and what John is saying is, boy, if you don't know who Jesus is, remember his baptism. That Jesus said there's no one greater in the history of the world than John the baptizer. And John the baptizer testified that his cousin Jesus was the lamb of God who comes to take away the sins of the whole world all nations and races and cultures and creeds and errors of every sort or kind. And that Jesus goes down to get baptized. And I tell you, one of the great joys in my life, I grew up as not a Christian. My dad was not a Christian. I became a Christian. My dad became a Christian. We were in Israel at the Jordan River where they believed Jesus was baptized. And I, in one day, I baptized my son and I turned around and I baptized my dad. And there was three generations of my family, men, belonging to Jesus in the waters of the Jordan together. It's one of the great joys in my whole life. One of the most healing things in my whole life. My son, my dad, and I, we all belong to Jesus. And we were in the the Jordan Rivers, and I just remember thinking, like, this actually happened. So the Bible's not just philosophical, it's historical. And when we're talking about Jesus, we're talking about someone who really did live, really did walk up to John the baptizer. John the baptizer really is in the river and Jesus comes to get baptized. And I can just, I can imagine this conversation. John looks at Jesus, uh, Jesus looks at John and John's like, I'm paraphrasing. John's like, what are you doing here? Jesus like, I'm here to get baptized. John's like, I baptize sinners. I don't feel like this is for you. They're having, you know, And Jesus says, no, I'm doing this. And it it is to fulfill all righteousness. What this is, is this is Jesus identifying himself with sinners. Here's what you need to know about Jesus. He's not a sinner, but he identifies with sinners. He identifies with sinners so that he could be their savior. And so he enters into the waters of baptism to identify with sinners. And as Jesus comes up out of the water, the whole Trinity is present in one of the most amazing occurrences in the history of the whole universe. Here's Jesus coming up out of the water. The Holy Spirit descends upon him in the form of a dove and God the Father speaks from heaven and says what? This is my son. He's the son of God. He's not just a good man. He's the God man. He's God become a man. This is my son in whom I am well pleased. This is like God putting a spotlight on Jesus. There he is. You've been waiting for him. Here he is. So John says, look to the baptism of Jesus. You want to know who Jesus is? Look to the waters of his baptism. Look at that event and what happened. In addition, he says to to consider um, that Jesus shed his blood. He comes by this issue of blood. When we think of blood, we think of the cross of Jesus. That Jesus literally began sweating blood the night before he was even crucified in the Garden of Gethsemane. The Bible says that he was so distressed knowing that he was going to substitute himself in the place for sinners on the cross, that the Son of God was going to endure the wrath of God the Father, that their eternal union and communion would be broken for an instant as God made him who knew no sin to become sin so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. 
And Jesus goes to the cross, and before he goes to the cross, he's in the Garden of Gethsemane, and he's praying and crying out to the Father. And the Bible says that he literally sweated drops of blood. That is someone that medical doctors will tell you who is experiencing incredible distress and duress. He's under tremendous anxiety and pressure. And so the bloodshedding begins in his praying. He then is betrayed by Judas Iscariot, a pretend friend. He is beaten so that blood is flowing. A crown of thorns is put in his head so that more blood is flowing. The Bible simply says that then they took him to be scourged, which is a cat of nine tails or a flagrum. It has shards of leather that go out with metal or bone at the end to tenderize the flesh as you would a steak. Hooks at the end like a fish hook that would then sink deeply into a man's physical body and literally rip the flesh off of his body. That happened to the Lord Jesus. We sometimes say, oh, Jesus died for your sins, but we don't slow down and explain the excruciating pain that the Lord Jesus went through. So a word was actually created and excruciating literally means from the cross. It is such a horrific experience that we needed a word to categorize what that experience was. And so then Jesus' body is beaten to the degree that Isaiah the prophet says that he was marred beyond human likeness and the blood is flowing. And then Jesus carries his cross to his place of crucifixion and the equivalent of railroad ties are driven through the most sensitive nerve centers on the human body, the hands and the feet, so that more blood flows. And the Lord Jesus is lifted up, crown of thorns, beard plucked out, body beaten mercilessly, flogged, and also crucified, and there drips blood off of the body of Jesus. God became a man, and he substituted himself for sinners, and he stands in our place, and he puts us in his place, and he literally trades places with us. And so that's why if you're here and you're a Christian, you understand the blood of Jesus. And if you're not a Christian, you're saying, why did Christians talk about the blood of Jesus? Because he loved us so much that he took our place and he paid our price. And he put us in his place of blessing while he went into our place of cursing. And so when we think of Jesus, we have to think of his death in our place for our sins. And every generation, friends, there is pressure to get rid of the cross of Jesus, pressure to get rid of the punishment of Jesus, to turn him into just a good example and not a substitute. We can't forget that Jesus is the perfect example. He lived without sin, but he's also our substitute. He died in our place for our sins. He endured the wrath of God in his body and soul, and he experienced the wrath of God so that we who believe in him would not have to. And so he's saying, if you don't know who Jesus is, well, look at what happened at the baptism. And then look at what happened at the cross. And this man, John, was present at the crucifixion of Jesus. They usually crucified men at eye level, and you would literally look a man in the eye. On the rare occasion that they would crucify a woman, oftentimes history records that they would turn her around facing the cross because even that barbarous culture wouldn't want to see a woman in that state. And there at the cross of Jesus was John. So this man who is saying this, he's not just talking about the blood of Jesus. He watched it drip off his body. He says, if you want to know who Jesus is, the first witness is, look at what happened and was said at his baptism. Secondly, look to the cross and how he was treated and how he responded. And then thirdly, he said, the third witness is the Spirit. The Spirit is the one who testifies because the Spirit is the truth. The Holy Spirit only always tells the truth. The Holy Spirit never lies. 
Hey, and, and we live in a culture that is so corrupt, it doesn't even believe in truth and lies. It only believes in perspective. Well, God's perspective is objective, and God knows the truth, and he knows that which is false, and the Holy Spirit reveals to us the truth. So if you want to know the truth about Jesus, he's saying you ultimately need that third witness, the Holy Spirit, the third member of the Trinity. Uh, for there are three that testify, the Spirit, the water, and the blood, and these three agree. What he's saying is, all three of these witnesses, they agree. If we had a court case and you brought in three separate witnesses and they'd never corroborated their story and they walked in independently and they testified under oath and they agreed perfectly, you'd say, well, that must be true because they all sing the same song. They all tell the same story. And what he's saying is that everything in history and everything in scripture ultimately points to the same thing, that Jesus is not just a good man, he's the God man. God became a man. He really did live, he really did die, he really did rise, and all of this is made known to us by the power of the Holy Spirit. Let me explain this to you. First of all, we see the Holy Spirit in the life and ministry of Jesus. If I could go back to his baptism, when Jesus was baptized and the Father spoke from heaven, the Holy Spirit descended upon him in the form of a dove, and some of the gospels will say that the Holy Spirit abided or remained or rested on him. And what we are to understand and assume is that all of Jesus' life and ministry was by the person, the presence, the power of the Holy Spirit. Some of you come from traditions when you hear, oh, you should be spirit-filled. You get a little freaked out, okay? Here's what it means in the Bible to be spirit-filled, to be like Jesus, to be like Jesus. The Bible says that Jesus was filled with the Holy Spirit. It says that he was led by the Holy Spirit. It said he rejoiced in the Holy Spirit, that the hand of the Lord, that's the Holy Spirit, was upon him. That Jesus' whole life was lived as we are to live our life by the power of the Holy Spirit. So if you want to be like Jesus, you can't be like Jesus without the Holy Spirit. That's the point. And so he says, okay, the third witness is the Holy Spirit. Look at Jesus' life. There's no sin. He only tells the truth. He, he walks on water. He casts out demons. He, he multiplies fishes and loaves and he feeds the poor. Look at all the things that Jesus did. That's not just a mere man. That's, that's the God-man operating by the power of the Holy Spirit. The Jesus' whole life is an evidence of the power and the presence of the person of the Holy Spirit at work on him and in him and through him. And then the Holy Spirit inspires the writing of Scripture. All Scripture is God-breathed. So not only do we see the Holy Spirit at work in the life of Jesus, the Holy Spirit writes a book for us, and you need to know this here at the Trinity Church, we believe that this is the only perfect thing on the earth. We believe that this is the book that God wrote. We believe that there are tons of books, and some of them very helpful, but this is the book that God wrote. And that the Holy Spirit inspired human authors to literally give us the very words of God. So everything in here is true. Now, there may be things, as I said, that are hard for us to understand, and it'll require humility and study, but everything in here is absolutely, altogether, incontrovertibly true, and we begin with that assumption. And so we look at the Holy Spirit as the witness to Jesus, we look at his work in the life of Jesus, we read the scriptures about Jesus, and then also we have the inner witness of the Holy Spirit. We have the inner witness of the Holy Spirit, and those of you who know the Lord Jesus, you understand the ministry of the Holy Spirit. Because I'll tell you my story as an example. I grew up marginal Jack Catholic boy, okay? So if you're here, welcome to our mass. I'm Father Mark, bless you. So uh, 
I grew up marginal Jack Catholic boy and I heard about Jesus, but I didn't believe in Jesus and I didn't love Jesus. And at the age of 19, I was a college freshman and I was reading a Bible that a very sweet gal gave me. She's now my wife. And uh, my line is always, if a gal buys you a Bible, buy her a ring. You know, that's kind of my deal. So Grace bought me a Bible and I'm reading the Bible in college. And I remember reading the Bible uh, and I had to read it for a class at a state university. And something just changed in me that was supernatural that I, I can't altogether explain, but I did experience. I loved Jesus. I just loved Jesus. I, I, I knew about Jesus before, but I didn't love him. I believed in Jesus. I, I remember I was reading my Bible and I, I got up and you know, went on with my day as a college freshman and I thought, something happened. Like, all of a sudden, I want to read the Bible more. Before, I had no desire for the Bible at all. All of a sudden, it's like, mm, I want to. I started reading the Bible. I started reading the Bible more than the books for my classes at the university because I actually enjoyed it. I remember there was one Friday night, a bunch of the guys were going out drinking and they came in and they said, hey, you want to go with us? And I, did, I didn't drink, but sometimes I'd hang out with the guys. And I said, no. They said, what are you going to do? I said, I'm gonna, I, I, I caught myself saying it. And I felt, bad, I felt weird saying it. I said, well, I'm going to read my Bible tonight. They looked at me like they thought I was joking. I was like, last week, that would have been a joke. This week, it's actually something I'm excited about. What happened from last Friday to this Friday is a miracle. And that is, I would have made a joke that I'm going to stay home and read my Bible. And now that's actually what I'm going to do because I want to. I started reading the Bible and I, I liked it. I was like, oh, this is amazing. And I'm learning and I'm, I got to find a church. I'm walking into church. Going, what am I doing here? I, I want to learn about Jesus. Oh, you guys know Jesus. I want to get to know you. All of a sudden, my desires change. I want to be with God's people. I want to learn God's word. You know what that is? That's the Holy Spirit changing someone from the inside out. Okay? Religion tells you to do things that you don't want to do. Christianity tells you to do things that you and God both want to do. And what happens is when you become a Christian and you receive the Holy Spirit, God starts to change your desires so that your desires start to align with God's desires. And what God wants for you is what you ultimately want. And that means that you get to read the Bible. You get to pray. You get to be with God's people. These are not things that you hate to do and have to do. These are things that you want to do and you actually like to do. Okay. And so I'll just tell you, I'm a very happy Christian and I like the Bible. So, you know, that's just how it works for me. And that's the ministry of the Holy Spirit. And what he's saying is the Holy Spirit is at work in the life of Jesus. All of this is truthfully recorded in the scriptures. And as we read the scriptures about Jesus and we hear from the Holy Spirit about his work in and through Jesus, the Holy Spirit does a work in us. And all of a sudden we have this inner witness and testimony to where we say, I believe in Jesus. I understand the big idea of the scriptures is the person and work of Jesus and God is changing me from the inside out. And if you're here and you've never had that experience, you may not be a Christian. You may not be a Christian. You may be religious. You may be moral. You may be spiritual. You may have grew up in a Christian home. You may have Christian family. You may have Christian friends, but you do not yet have the Holy Spirit. You know you have the Holy Spirit when you really love Jesus. You know you have the Holy Spirit when you really want to learn the Bible. Okay? I would submit to you that those are the two primary ways you really know you have the Holy Spirit. 
There's a lot of other things that come along with that. But ultimately, if you're like, I love Jesus and I want to learn the Bible, then you know that the Holy Spirit is in you and he's done a miracle and he's changing you from the inside out. Amen. And what he's saying is, these three witnesses all agree. Right? Look at Jesus' baptism. Look at Jesus' crucifixion. Read the scriptures. Receive the inner witness of the Holy Spirit. Jesus is not just a good man. He's the God man. And then he proceeds forward with his case for us, the jury. And he talks about the testimony of God the Father. And in every court case, there's one, at least in a good movie or television show, right? How many of you like those courtroom dramas? You're like me, I find them fairly fascinating. I know there's a few attorneys here in the room, right? Some of you live in the legal world and you know the key is a star witness. Once that person, it's over, man, it's done, right? And you save the star witness for usually the end of the case. Everybody gets their say and then out walks the star witness, sits down, testifies, game, set, match, overdone. The star witness ends the case. That's everything. Who's the star witness? Here's the question. Who's the highest authority in the history of the world? It's God the Father. If you, if you look at the org chart, that's the top. There's nobody above him. God the Father, right? Jesus says, the Father has sent me. I say what the Father has told me to say. I do what the Father has told me to do. He even submits to the Father and he says, your will be done. Even Jesus acknowledges the authority of God the Father as the highest authority of all. There is no higher authority than God the Father. Here's what he says. If we receive the testimony of men, and we do, right? How many of you get in a car wreck? First thing you do, you get out, you try and get everybody's information so that if it goes to court, you've got witnesses, we have to depend upon the eyewitness testimony of others. There are historical events that quite frankly cannot be repeated. We were not there, people were. We take their eyewitness testimony as historically credible. We depend on eyewitness testimony all the time. There's things going on in the world. We're not there, we assume that the reporter is showing us what's actually happening, telling us some of the events that are actually transpiring. We depend on human testimony all the time. What he says is, the testimony of God is greater. Okay. The testimony of God is greater. For this is the testimony of God that he has born concerning his son. God the Father testifies about Jesus Christ, the son of God. And here's the truth. Nobody knows who Jesus is better than God the Father. I've got three sons. Nobody knows my boys better than me. I'm their dad. When the Bible uses this language of father and son, uh, John Calvin used to say that God sometimes speaks baby talk. You know, when you got a kid, you get down and you say, okay, let me explain this to you in kind of kid terms so you can understand it. There are times that God speaks baby talk to us. When he says that he's a father and that Jesus is his son, he's trying to give us an understanding of the inner workings of the intimacy of their relationship. And, and nobody knows God the son like God the father, nobody. So the question is, well, what does God the Father say? And some of you say, I read a book, but it's not, it's not equal in authority to God the Father. Right? I mean, there are so many books and so many conferences and so many teachings about Jesus, but I'm saying, look at the testimony. Do any of these people have the same authority as God the Father? If not, all other witnesses need to be judged by the highest witness. Concerning his son, whoever believes in the son of God has the testimony in himself. So that's the Holy Spirit. Whoever does not believe, God has made him a liar uh, because he has not believed in the testimony of God that God has borne concerning his son. Here's what he's saying. If, if you're the jury and we're convening court, 
Right, out walks God the Father. There's a hush. What's he going to say about Jesus? And all the parade of human history has already happened, right? All the philosophers and the dictators and the politicians and the sociologists, all of the speculation comes, all the footnotes from all the books have been read, everyone's given their opinion, and now God the Father gets the last word. True or false, what he says is really all that matters. That's all that really matters. You'd be like, well, this community college professor, it doesn't matter, right? Whatever he put on his blog is not a big deal now. God the Father says, at the baptism of Jesus, God the Father speaks from heaven. This is my Son. Jesus is the Son of God. Jesus is the Son of God. He's the only Son of God. There's no one like Him. There's no one alongside of Him. There's no one equal to Him. He alone is the Son of God. God sent His Son to become a human being to identify with us in His baptism, in His death, in His resurrection, so that we who are sinners would have a Savior. And to make sure we didn't miss who this is, God literally, it's like God took a megaphone in heaven and said, this is my Son. There's no debate at that point. It's very clear who Jesus is. Like, well, who says so? The maker of heaven and earth. You could call in your next witness, but I assure you his resume is not equal to the guy we just heard from. Okay, here's my point. When it comes to Jesus, we all need to trust somebody. Who are you gonna trust? And my question would be, what witness could you possibly bring in to testify that would have any authority equal to God the Father? And God the Father says that Jesus is the Son of God. This is my Son in whom I am well pleased. Now, some of you are here and you may have objections to Christianity. You may have questions concerning Jesus Christ. My question to you is, are you following the truth wherever it leads? Because if you follow the truth wherever it leads, you'll come to the same conclusion. Jesus alone is the Son of God. Which leads to the final question, and that is regarding your testimony about Jesus. We've heard the testimony of the three witnesses, the water, the blood, and the Spirit. We've heard the highest authority, God the Father. Jesus asked this amazing question during his life. He asked, who do you say that I am? That's a very important question. How would you answer Jesus' question? What is your testimony regarding Jesus? Who do you say that he is? And literally all of history is into two categories. He's a good man or he's the God man. Would you say that he is the God man, the son of God, God become a man? 1 John 5, 11 through 13. And this is the testimony that God gave us eternal life. And this life is in his son. Can I, I'm going to park there for a minute. I need to be very careful with this. Christians will often say, give your life to Jesus, give your sin to Jesus, give yourself to Jesus. And when you die, you'll go to heaven. That's true. And I like to add, and heaven will come to you the minute that you meet Jesus. Christianity is not just for dead people. It's for all people. 
Christianity doesn't just begin the day that your life ends. Okay? Because eternal life is not something that starts on the day you die. It starts on the day that you meet Jesus. Eternal life is a duration of life, but it's also a quality of life. It's not just you going to heaven. It's the Holy Spirit bringing heaven to you. And one of the th- reasons I think that young people are so disconcerned about Christianity is because they think it's only something that really kicks in when you die. As a result, until you're old or on your deathbed or sickly, Christianity doesn't really have any purpose for you because you're not looking at going to heaven anytime soon. You tell the average 15-year-old, you'll go to heaven when you die. They'll say, and in 60 years, I'll think about that. Between now and then, I'm going to live my life. Let me tell you something that's really important. Eternal life is in his son. Eternal life is life lived with Jesus. We live in a culture that people say, I don't believe in Jesus, but I do believe in heaven. In fact, the majority of the culture does not believe in Jesus, but the majority of the culture does believe in heaven, statistically. According to the Bible, when it's speaking of heaven and Jesus, we're talking about the same thing. Because heaven is being with Jesus. That's all it is. What makes heaven heaven is Jesus is there. He's the king with the kingdom, ruling and reigning. All sin is gone. Every tear is wiped from our eyes. There is no more war, famine, plague, death, or lies. Satan and demons are forever disposed. Relationships are forever reconciled. People are forever healed. It's the way things were supposed to be before sin corrupted everyone and everything. So firstly, I need you to understand that the goal is not to go to heaven. The goal is to be with Jesus. The goal is to be with Jesus. And if you're with Jesus, true or false, you'll find yourself in heaven. You'll find your, if your goal is to be with Jesus, you will find yourself in heaven. But there are people that are trying to get to heaven that aren't walking with Jesus. And the truth is, there is no way to heaven apart from Jesus. That's what he says. I'm the way, the truth, and the life. No one gets to the Father but by me. So I want you, first of all, to see heaven is not just a place. It's a person named Jesus. And wherever he rules, that is, that is the place that we would consider to be heaven, perfect. It's the place of God's presence and rule and God's peace and God's pleasure. So for those of you that have heaven in one category and Jesus in the other, let me bring them together. There's no heaven apart from Jesus. And secondly, eternal life is not something that begins the day you die. It begins the day you meet Jesus. Jesus saves from Satan, sin, death, hell, the wrath of God, and the self. Jesus has saved me from myself. I can promise you that if I wouldn't have met Jesus at 19, I don't believe that Grace and I would be married today. I believe that my domineering arrogance and my selfishness would have crushed her and ruined our friendship. I believe that if I didn't know Jesus, that I would not be a good father. I would probably be an overbearing, dictatorial, sort of angry dad. And my kids would not be flourishing under my leadership. I believe that apart from Jesus saving me from myself, that I wouldn't have been faithful for the last 28 years since I met her and 24 years married to her, faithful to my bride. I would have done a lot of hellish things. I am so glad that I met Jesus at 19 and that he has done a good work of saving me from myself. 
And that's what that is, that's eternal life. What it is, it's not just a duration of life, but it's a quality of life with Jesus. Now, maybe at the end of my life, if I would have lived my life apart from Jesus and confessed my sin, he would have forgiven me and taken me into heaven. But what I would have done is I would have just, I would have eaten a steady diet of hell through my entire life and I would have fed it to my wife and children. And instead, God the Holy Spirit begins to change me and is still changing me so that the eternal life of Jesus causes me to feast on the grace of God. And so the way I love my wife and the way I love my kids and the way I live my life is very different. So that eternal life begins in this life. Does that make sense? How many of you, your life would be very different and not very better if you hadn't met Jesus? Okay, it's not just about dying and going to heaven. It's about eternal life, meeting Jesus, life with Jesus, life changing, and, and, and then life on this sort of growth trajectory until we die and then we're in the presence of Jesus and we get the eternal life in its fullness. But it's like in bud form right now and then it blossoms upon death. I just, it just bothers me when we just present Jesus as only good for death. He's good for every day in this life and the life to come. He says, this is the testimony that God gave us eternal life. That's eternal life. It's the life of Jesus in you by the Holy Spirit so that your life with Jesus begins right now and you become increasingly more like him until you see him face to face and you're in his presence and with him forever. And this life is in his son. There's no life apart from Jesus. There's no new life apart from Jesus. There's no forgiveness of sin apart from Jesus. There's no eternal life apart from Jesus. You say, well, how do I know I have eternal life? It's easy. Whoever has the son has life. Everything comes down to Jesus. Do you have Jesus? Not just a good man that you admire, but a God man that you trust in. Do you believe in Jesus? Do you love Jesus? Do you belong to Jesus? Have you trusted in Jesus? Does the son have you and do you have the son in a mutual embrace? Whoever does not have the son of God does not have life, right? Now, I told you that there are certain things in the Bible that are hard to understand. That's not one of them, amen? Can we say that's pretty straightforward, okay? You have Jesus, you have eternal life. You don't have Jesus, you don't have eternal life. That's clear. That's clear. If you're here today and you don't belong to Jesus, you don't know Jesus, you don't love Jesus, you don't have eternal life. You don't have forgiveness of sin. You don't have reconciled relationship with God. You don't have the power of the Holy Spirit doing a transformative work in you from the inside out. You don't. And what you need to do is you need to turn from sin and trust in Jesus. You need to receive Jesus as the son of God. This will be the foundation and the bedrock at the Trinity Church. We're not trying to make people better. We're trying to see God make people new. Right? We're not just trying to prepare people for death. We're trying to also prepare people for tomorrow and the life that God would have for them. And if you belong to Jesus, you have life. You don't belong to Jesus, you don't have eternal life. That's as clear as I can make it. I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God that you may know, and that's a key word that appears over and over and over, this issue of knowing that you have eternal life. Now, let me, let me explain this. When it comes to religion, spirituality, 
there really are only, if you want to boil it down to its essence, two approaches to God. One we'll call works, the other we'll call grace. And in works, it is you are the solution to your problem. That's really the essence of it. You have a problem, could be sin, ignorance, karma, whatever the problem is that a religion would denote that you have, the solution is you. Right? So it's self-help, self-love, self-esteem, self-actualization, self-works. The result is that it, it really ends up in one of two things, either religion or reincarnation. That's where work ends up. So if you have a works ideology, religion is you need to do better, you need to try harder, you need to perform more. Okay? And this can be, you need to go to Mecca, you need to give a certain amount of money, you need to suffer, you need to die and then reincarnate and pay off your karmic debt. That's the reincarnation. So it's either religion, be very devoted, pay God back, or reincarnation, die and pay back. But either way, there is a debt and you are the one who must pay. There is a problem and you are the one who must provide the solution. You know what that doesn't produce? Knowing that you have eternal life. There's no confidence. If it is religion, have I done enough? If it's reincarnation, have I suffered enough? You never know. You never know. That's why people who have a works ideology, and this can be lots of different religions and spiritualities, there's this unsettled, aggressive, angst-ridden effort to hopefully get to a place where I cross the finish line. Some of you grew up in those homes. Some of you grew up in those cults and those religions and those ideologies. And what works results in, it results in two things, despair and pride. Despair meaning, I tried and I'm not good enough. Or pride, I tried and I am good enough. Christianity is different than all other religions and philosophies and spiritualities and ideologies because the Bible does say there is a problem, but you're not the solution. Jesus is the solution. And yes, something needs to be done, but you're not the one to do it. Jesus will do it. And when he said on the cross, it's finished, it was all done. And when religion says, you need to pay God back, Christianity says, no, Jesus, the son of God, he died in your place for your sins. Your debt to God is paid. We call that grace. We call that grace. And sometimes Christians will say, we're not saved by works, we're saved by grace. Well, we're saved by grace through the works of Jesus. Let's not forget that he did all the work. That he did all the work. He lived without sin, not us. He died for sin, not us. He gives salvation as a gift of grace, something we don't deserve, but something that we receive as a gift. And you know what that leads to? Not pride, I did it! Not despair, it's not going to happen. What that leads to is joy. It's finished. I'm loved by God, I'm forgiven by God, I'm embraced by God, I'm accepted by God because I belong to the Son of God. I'm with Jesus. He took my place, he put me in his place. I get all of his blessing, he took all of my punishment. This is an amazing gift that God gives. And the result is that you may, what? What's the word? You can read 1 John. I would encourage you to. When I was a brand new Christian and I was in college, 
my pastor said, uh, read 1 John and circle every time you see the word know and love. And you can know that you're loved. Imagine a relationship that I had with my five children that was more religious in orientation. I don't love you, but I might. You need to earn it. But you ever get out of line and I will take my love away and I will stop loving you. So my love for you is conditional and it's predicated on your performance. That's not our father. Our father says, this is my son in whom I'm well pleased. And if you were with my son, I'm well pleased with you. I can't love you anymore. I won't love you any less. And since my love is predicated upon Jesus, you can't unearn my love and I will not withdraw my love. I love you. I'm committed to you. I'm devoted to you because you are with my son and you're in my son. I want this burden to come off of you. Some of you live under this condemning burden of religious works and performance and it leads to pride on your good days and despair on your bad days and it leads to joy and satisfaction on no days because you never know that you have eternal life. If you're with Jesus, I have good news for you. You have eternal life. And you know how long eternal life lasts? Forever. When people ask, can you lose your salvation? How do you lose eternal life? It's eternal. Amen? If God gives me eternal life, I think it'll be there tomorrow and the day after that. And all of a sudden the burden comes off and we don't serve God, we don't obey God, we don't love God because we're afraid of him withdrawing his affection. We love, we serve, we obey God because his affection changes us and causes us to be more like Jesus. And the Holy Spirit gives us desires to be increasingly more like Jesus. And we want the eternal life of God to start right now. And we want to taste more of it tomorrow and more of it the day after that. And we want to start preparing ourselves for God's eternal kingdom. And we look forward to the day when we see Jesus face to face. And all of our longings become sight and all of our desires become satisfied in the presence of Jesus, because heaven is being with him forever, wherever he happens to be. Now I'll close with this. The last witness, who's saying all of this? John. John in his day was in a category unto himself. He was the most authoritative spiritual leader alive on the earth. Um, In our day, the most authoritative Christian on the earth, I would submit, is Billy Graham. Everybody knows Billy Graham, and at least everybody who's paying attention appreciates Billy Graham, okay? Um, Billy Graham has lived a long life loving, serving Jesus faithfully. And he's now right at the end of his life. And, And when he speaks, he speaks with a lot of authority after a whole life of walking with Jesus. I had the uh, pleasure, I've met Billy Graham twice. Uh, One, I went and saw him a couple years ago in Carolina. And the first time I met him, I was working at a Marriott hotel. I was like a 19, 20 year old new Christian kid. And I'm hauling bags and driving shuttle van. And I'm early in the morning, people going to the airport and I I walk by the uh, restaurant at the Marriott. And I see this old guy wearing a Minnesota Twins ball cap, huge Coke bottle glasses, reading the newspaper. This is back in the day when they had papers. And uh, I thought, man, that looks like Billy Graham. So I go in the restaurant. I said, excuse me, sir, can I ask you a question? He brings it down. He says, well, yes, you may. And I knew it was Billy Graham. As soon as I heard the voice, like, that's him. And so he said, yes, I am Billy Graham. I said, oh, my gosh. I I told him, I'm a new Christian. I feel like God's called me to ministry. He encouraged me. I, I think he prayed for me. 
I visited with him for a while. He, what do you want to do? What's God calling you to? I was like, I'm talking to Billy Graham, you know, and not working. And, um, and then next thing, next thing you know, all of a sudden, everybody in the restaurant notices, oh my gosh, that's Billy Graham. And I've just, I've just blown Billy Graham's undercover breakfast. I've just ruined it. Next thing you know, people start coming over. Oh, could you pray for me? He's praying for people. Could you answer this question? He's answering questions. Next thing I know, they're putting kids on his lap like he's Santa Claus, taking photos with him. <laughs> Next thing I know, all the housekeepers are stealing the Gideon's Bibles, okay? Borrowing, and they're bringing them to Billy Graham so that he could sign the Bibles, okay? And he sat there for a long time, maybe an hour or two. No cameras, no press, just loving and serving people. And I thought, he's the real deal. And he had such authority because it was a life lived with Jesus. Let me submit to you that at this point in his life, that's the season that John is in. He started as a young man in his 20s. We don't know for sure. He was perhaps Jesus' cousin. There's a debate about that. He was working in the family business of fishing with his dad and his brother. Jesus walks along and says, come follow me, I'll make you fishers of men. Says they immediately dropped their nets. They walked away from their income, their family business, and he followed Jesus and his whole life changed as a young man who was probably in his 20s. In that day, you didn't necessarily pick a college, you picked a teacher. And you would have a a really close relationship of mentoring with that teacher. Well, Jesus was his rabbi, his teacher. So he ate meals with Jesus, he traveled with Jesus, he listened to Jesus, he he worked with Jesus, he was there. For everything you read about in the Bible, pretty much John was there. He was one of the inner circle of three disciples, Peter, James, and John. They were there for moments that other people didn't have this sort of backstage pass to the life of Jesus. He saw the raising of Jairus' daughter. He saw Moses and Elijah come down to meet with Jesus on the Mount of Transfiguration. They were closest to Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane the night before he was sent to be executed. John loved Jesus so much that he was like a little brother to Jesus. And it says in John's gospel on a few occasions that John was actually the one whom Jesus loved. They were best friends. John was there at the cross of Jesus, watching Jesus get crucified and standing next to him was Jesus' mother, Mary. And Jesus looked down and he basically said, John, I want you to take care of my mom. Whoever you appoint on your deathbed to love your mother, that's the person you trust the most, amen? That was John. Jesus was buried. When news came out that Jesus had risen from death and conquered sin and death, John and Peter ran. Peter was older, John was younger, so John got there first, okay? He was the first one to recognize that Jesus had risen from death. He went on to be a pastor, a preacher, and a teacher He saw all of the other 12 disciples murdered and martyred. He saw his brother murdered and martyred. They tried to kill John. They boiled him alive. History outside of the Bible records. They exiled him to a place called Patmos, which is a penal colony in the middle of nowhere. I've been there. It's in the middle of the rugged sea, just covered with rock and wind and salt water. It's a desperate place. And he was exiled there because he didn't die through the boiling. And the Bible records in Revelation that it was on the Lord's day, a Sunday, that the Lord Jesus came down from heaven to meet with his friend John. Because John had seen him ascend into heaven and went to serve him and never thought he would see him probably again until he got to heaven. And instead, Jesus came down and spent time with him. 
And everyone in that day knows who John is. He's been serving Jesus for 60 to 80 years. At this point, he's 80 to 100 years of age. He's an elderly man. He's probably, you know, having to be helped in and out of the church. And so when they bring John into this proverbial courtroom and he is here testifying, what he says is, Jesus is the Son of God. He lived a life with no sin. He said he was God. He died. I was there. I saw the blood flow off his body. He was buried. I went to the tomb. He rose. I gave him a hug and had breakfast with him. He is eternal life. There is no life apart from him. And John's the one who presents the case. And if you're here and you don't know Jesus, my question is, who else would you possibly trust? What other witness could there possibly be? And are they more credible than all of the witnesses that have been presented by John? Father, thanks for an opportunity to teach the Bible today and spend a little time with John. Lord, I'm just captured by this thought that upon the resurrection of the dead, we're actually going to meet John. We'll we'll be with him forever. We We can actually ask him questions about what it was like to be there. Lord, we thank you for the faithful witness of John that he... He held firm under opposition and persecution and that he did so at great personal cost and we can trust him as a faithful witness about Jesus. We thank you for the testimony of Jesus' baptism. We thank you for the testimony of Jesus' crucifixion. We thank you for the testimony of the inner witness of the Holy Spirit who reveals to us the written word of God, the truth about Jesus. Lord, I thank you for an opportunity to share with these people today. And I pray that we'd always approach the scriptures with humility and the things that we don't understand. We wouldn't assume that they were wrong, but that we just needed to learn. And Lord, I pray for us here at the Trinity Church that the bedrock of all that we say and do would be pointing ultimately as a witness to Jesus and a testimony to Jesus. And I pray if there's any here that don't know you, Lord Jesus, that they would come to know you now. Holy Spirit, would you bring them the life of Jesus? And Lord, I pray as we gear up toward our public launch that you would be preparing hearts and minds to learn about Jesus and that people would meet Jesus and that they would experience eternal life beginning in this life and continuing forever. And Lord, thank you that the relationships that we have, the eternal relationships, and that we'll be together as the people of God forever. Thank you that Jesus, you've gone before us. Thank you that you've taken John and he's enjoying fellowship with you right now. And we look forward to the day when our faith becomes sight And with John, we're hanging out with Jesus in whose name we pray. Amen.